Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, I think it's not snowing anymore, but uh, but uh, I know that everyone in Baltimore panics when they see that first snowflake. So we uh, are happy you're here. We have some refreshments in the back if you'd like to grab something. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and it's a real pleasure to welcome Nadia Hashimi to the Pratt Library and to the Poe Room. Nadja's debut novel, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, was published in May of last year, and it received many stellar reviews. In it, she tells the stories of two young Afghan women, Rahima and Shakiba, separated by a century, who adopt the ancient custom of bacha posh, dressing as boys to acquire freedoms not um, accorded to girls. Khaled Hosseini, the author of um, And the Mountains Echoed and The Kite Runner, I'm sure many of you have read his books, um, he praised Nadja Hashimi's novel, and I quote, Nadja Hashimi has written, first and foremost, a tender and beautiful family story. Her always engaging, multi-generational tale is a portrait of Afghanistan in all of its perplexing, enigmatic glory and a mirror into the still ongoing struggles of Afghan women, end quote. Please join me in welcoming Nadja Hashimi. Thank you so much, Judy, and for everyone for coming out in this weather um, and braving the icy conditions and everything out there. Um, I'm really honored to be here. This is my first time actually in the library here in Baltimore, and it's a magnificent building. You've got a lot of energy in this library, so it's really nice to actually have an event here and be part of that. Um, So I'll tell you a little bit about myself, which will kind of lead into how this story came about. Um, I am the daughter of immigrants, so my parents came over from Afghanistan. They were born and raised in Afghanistan, came over in the early 1970s. Um, They were engaged while my mother was still in Afghanistan. My father was here in the U.S. He had come over just to work for a couple of years and then had the intention of going back. Uh, My mother went from Afghanistan to Europe. She was uh, studying for her uh, master's in chemical engineering. So she did that. And then after she finished getting her master's, she came to the United States. They got married, um, went out for Chinese food afterwards. That was their celebration. And then had the intention of working for a couple of years and returning back home. And as world history went on, they said, well, we'll go home after things settle down, and then things never really settled down. And so, you know, three decades later, my family's been here and has taken root um, in the New York and then New Jersey area. Um, And so I grew up with a large extended family, and living in, a, in an area that was not very diverse, um, but able to kind of appreciate two different worlds. So I had my Afghan family and my Afghan world at home. And then we also had a very American life. We were, um, I grew up actually working in a deli. My parents owned a deli in upstate New York. And so I made sandwiches and we were very much part of the community and everything was very normal. Um, of course, September 11th happened and that was a big shock to everyone, including our family. Um, And a little bit of awareness, I think, kind of came out of that event, um, both in myself and in the the community at large. 
Um, during that time, September 11th, I was actually um, in medical school in Brooklyn. And from there, I finished my training in pediatrics at NYU. Uh, I got married and moved down to Maryland. My husband and I decided to make Maryland our new home, and we've started to establish our roots here. Um, about a year after we were married, my husband, I think, got tired of watching me read books and ignoring him. And he knew that I you know, really had this passion for reading and writing, especially when I was younger, and then I'd kind of put it to the side. And he said, you know, why don't you just take some time and try it, because I think you really want to do this. And it was with his encouragement that I said, okay, well, if I sit down to write a story, what would I want to write about? And for me, I grew up very conscious of the fact that I had a very different experience than my counterparts in Afghanistan would have had. And I, having had a large extended family also in Afghanistan, I knew that there were cousins of my own age who had very different opportunities, very different openings for them. Um, and so just by the f good fortune of having been born in the United States, my experience, although our families are very similar and both families might promote education and feel that it's really important, what we're able to do was very different just on the basis of where we happen to be born. And so I really wanted to talk about what it means to be an Afghan girl and what gender means in Afghanistan in general. And it occurred to me that one way to do that would be to use the Bachapush custom. And so I'll tell you a little bit about the Bachapush custom. Uh, it's, it's a custom in which families who do not have a son will take one of their daughters and have her dress as a boy. And this is done, it can be done from birth or it can be done later on. The girl is then supposed to be changed back before she hits puberty, which is the time that gender actually means a whole lot more um, in Afghan culture. Um, and the reason that this is done is because it's, it is a very deeply patriarchal society. And for that reason, they really value their sons. They're the ones who carry on the family name. It's the lineage. And, and the sons traditionally are the, the people who support their parents, as their parents age, the daughters usually marry off into a, a different home and become absorbed into another family. So with that kind of tradition in mind, a family that does not have any sons is sort of almost pitied, and there's, a, there's like a, a void in that family. So we, as a society, if you kind of create this problem and you create this... Um, disadvantage for families that don't have a son, then there also is this creative solution for it. Well, you can dress up one of your girls as a boy, and then you'll be okay. And so a little bit of it is a, a charade where people who know that this is actually a boy will go along with it. And then there are strangers who that child might interact with who don't know that this is actually a boy, and they think that this is truly a son to that family. Um, a lot of families will do this because there is a superstition that having a child masquerade as a son will actually bring good fortune to your family. And so the next child that is brought into the family will actually be born a boy for doing this. Sometimes it's a practical reason, uh, meaning that, you know, if a young girl can't really go outside the home or do a lot of activities that would be helpful to the family, then it's more useful to have a son. And so you can dress her up for a few years and, and have her carry on in that way. The tradition does cause a lot of problems, of course, because you, you can't really change a child's gender without it having an impact. And then the difference between being a boy and being a girl in Afghanistan 
is so different, especially depending on where you live, that if you can imagine living as a girl, and to be a girl in Afghanistan means you don't really look a man in the eye if you're talking to him. You avert your gaze. You don't really speak up. You're supposed to be more meek, more humble. You're more within the home. It's more of a domestic role. So to go from that experience to then being told, well, you can be a boy, and now you can go play soccer with your friends in the street, and now you can ride a bicycle, and now you can tell people that you disagree with them, and then you get to puberty, or right before puberty, and all of that is taken away from you. And so for those girls, it can be a, a pretty psychologically traumatizing event to have all of that taken away from them. Um, and so I thought that the Bachapush tradition, having a girl live on both sides of the line, would be an interesting way to talk about gender in Afghanistan and what it means. There also was a time in Afghanistan's history when one of the kings had a harem and he did not trust men to guard his harem for obvious reasons. And so what he did was he had women who would dress as men and they guarded his harem for him. And they were not really a bachapush in the sense that we think of as young girls dressing as men, but it just was a time where you had to appear as something that you weren't in order to serve a purpose. And so it occurred to me that it would be kind of neat to parallel these two time periods and these two purposes of dressing as an opposite gender. And from that came this story. Um, And the connection between the two characters really touches on the concept of legacy, which is also really important in Afghan culture. We like to know who our ancestors were, where we came from, who our family is, and from that, people glean a lot of pride, and they start to believe that they can do things or they can be things, um, and they can walk a little bit taller depending on you know what their family background is. And so for Afghans, it's really important to know where you come from. And so that's what I tried to create in this bond between the two characters, is having a relationship where one can draw on the past that comes from the family. Um, So that being the background of the story, I'll read you a piece. And to set it up for you, this is a scene where the young girl, um, who's the contemporary girl in the story, Rahima, she's actually going to be transformed into a boy. And it's sort of an anticlimactic event for some because it's it's an instantaneous transformation. I mean, just change their clothes and you cut their hair and they're kind of a boy and that's it. Um, and their their role in society really changes, but oftentimes they're not given a whole lot of equipment to handle what they're about to do or what they're about to take part in. They're just kind of pushed out there and said, here you go. Now all of a sudden you can do all these things. Um, So in this scene, Rahima, who is one of uh, five sisters, she's the middle of five sisters, she is being transformed. My mother took me behind the house with my father's scissors and razor. I sat nervously while my sisters watched. She pulled my long hair into a ponytail behind my head, whispered a prayer, and slowly began to shear away. Shala looked astonished. Rila looked entertained. 
and Parine watched only for a moment before running back into the house for her pencils and paper. She sketched furiously with her back turned to me. My mother cut and trimmed, bending my ear forward to trim around it. She cut my bangs short and straight across my forehead. I looked at the ground around me and saw hair everywhere. She brushed the loose strands from my shoulders, blew at my neck, and dusted off my back. My neck felt bare, exposed. I giggled with nervous excitement. Only Shalon noticed the single tear that trickled down my mother's cheek. The next step was my clothing. My mother asked my uncle's wife for a shirt and a pair of pants. My cousin had outgrown them, as had his older brother and my other cousin before him. She sent me inside to get dressed while she and my sister swept my girl hair from the courtyard. I slipped one leg in and then the other. They were slimmer and heavier than the usual balloon pants I wore under my dresses. I cinched the strings at the waist and made a knot. I pulled the tunic over my head and realized there was no ponytail to pull through after it. I let my hand run against the back of my head, feeling the short ends. I looked down and saw my knobby knees through the pantaloons. I folded my arms across my chest and cocked my head as I'd seen my cousin Sadiq do so many times. I kicked my foot, pretending there was a ball in front of me. Was that it? Was I a boy already? I thought of my aunt. I wondered what she would say if she were to see me like this. Would she smile? Had she really meant it when she suggested I should be turned into a boy? She told us our great-great-grandmother had worked on the farm like a boy, that she'd been a son to her father. I'd waited for her to go on, to get to the part where our great-great-grandmother turned into a boy. My aunt said she would come back and tell us more of that story another day. I hated having to wait. I smoothed my shirt down and went back out to see what my mother thought. Well, aren't you a handsome young boy, my mother said. Even I could detect the hint of nervous uncertainty in her voice. Are you sure? Don't I look odd? Shala covered her mouth with her hand at the sight of me. Oh my goodness, you look just like a boy. Mother, you can hardly tell it's her. My mother nodded. You won't have to get the knots taken out anymore, my sister said enviously. Her hair coiled into a mess of tiny bird's nests that Mother John struggled to brush out while Ruila winced and squirmed. From now on, we're going to call you Rahim instead of Rahima, my mother said tenderly. Her eyes looked heavier than they should have at the age of 30. Rahim? We have to call her Rahim? Yes, she is now your brother Rahim. You will forget about your sister Rahima and welcome your brother. Can you do that, girls? It's very important that you speak only of your brother Rahim and never mention that you have another sister. Just in case we forget what she looked like, Parween drew this picture of Rahima. She handed Mother a sketch that Parween had done while she was cutting my hair. It was an incredible likeness of me, the old me with long hair and naive eyes. My mother looked at the drawing and whispered something we didn't understand. She folded the paper and placed it on the tabletop. Is that it? Just like that? She's a boy? My sister looked skeptical. Just like that, my mother said quietly. This is how things are done. People will understand. You'll see. She knew my sisters would be the hardest to convince. Everyone else, teachers, aunts, uncles, and neighbors, they would accept my mother's new son without reservation. I wasn't the first Bachaposh. This was a common tradition for families in want of a son. What my mother was already dreading was the day she would have to change me back. But that would only be when I began to change into a woman, and that was still a few years away. Um, so that's just the, the 
moment of her transformation. And from there, she really has a lot to learn. So she has to relearn how she can interact with people, what she's allowed to do. And once she starts to get into it, she, like the other, so many other bunch of push girls that um, I've talked to or have read about, they really start to enjoy it. And the undoing of that girl when she turns back into a female is one of the most difficult times of their lives. And so when we read about these girls and talk to them, we hear different kinds of stories. Some of these girls go on to feel empowered and feel entitled. And they've gone on to have positions in government or professional jobs and careers and lives outside of the home. And you wonder, was this a girl who would have done that anyway? Or is this a girl who felt empowered through that experience and felt like she could go out and do those things? And we don't really know because you can't really study these things in an, in an organized way. You also have girls who are so almost shell-shocked from the idea of going back to a life of being a girl that they refuse. And there are some who want to carry on their entire lives living as boys. Um, and I've learned of someone recently who lives in the United States who is now at the point where she has started the process of undergoing a gender transformation surgically. And, and so you wonder what has really shifted. And again, it's hard to know what would have happened to this person had they been left in their natural state and had nature taken its course. But there, there may be a really strong role for you know, the experience of living as a push. There are also women who just totally turned off to the idea of marriage and decide that they don't want to become somebody's wife because taking on that role is not something that they can wrap their heads around after having lived as a boy in the society. Um, the, the idea of the Bachapush custom, in my mind, is something that fills that void. And what I see happening in Afghanistan is a transformation in how people see women and how people see girls. And I think that with time, in the direction that Afghanistan is going, it's going to be a very slow course. But I do feel like the role of women is changing based on what's happened in the last decade or so. And if we don't see girls as inferior to boys and we don't feel a void in our homes, then there will not be a purpose for the Becha Push custom. And I think that's when it will really die out. Um, but until then, it's an interesting topic and an interesting way of looking at gender in Afghanistan. And that's really what I hope to portray through this story. So with that, I will open it up to discussion with all of you, since I'm also here to hear from you guys. Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, good evening. It's a very good presentation. I had a question because I was thinking uh, a couple of months ago we had the recent Nobel Peace Prize recipient from 2014, a young Pakistani girl, 17-year-old, who at 15 years survived a uh, what they call assassination attempt on her life because she was speaking for women, for women who can't speak or whatever the situation may be. Do you see... An opening, not just in Afghanistan, but in that whole region, 
or of women who are starting to realize that they have rights, that they want to be asserted, they want to speak up and all that? Or is this just an Afghanistan thing, or is it just unique? How do you see it across where you're at, uh, Pakistan, India, Af- Bangladesh, and the like? So I think in those parts of the world, the opportunities that are afforded to girls really depends a, on, on your family and, and what their you know, standards are and what, what they deem as permissible for daughters. More than that, I think it's your geographical area. And so it's very hard to, for example, with Afghanistan, lump Afghanistan together as one territory in terms of you know, what a woman's right is. Women's rights or what a girl can do in Kabul it's incredibly different from what um, an Afghan girl's existence may be like if she's in a village in one of the outlying provinces, depending on the province. So there's a big spectrum in terms of the opportunities. Same thing is going to happen in India. Um, you know, what you can achieve in New Delhi or in Bombay is going to be very different than the opportunities to a girl who's in, you know, some small village in one of the, um, in the, in the local areas of India or Bangladesh. And so, in these areas, the economics really plays a big role. If families have access to free education, that allows them to have almost an equal footing with other families. Um, but, you know, families who are impoverished, who need their children to work, you know, it's not like in this country where children don't work up until a certain age. But if you, I mean, you can see pictures in Afghanistan of young children who are, you know, laying bricks or, you know, involved in different kinds of labor. And it's it's the economics of it. So, until the economics kind of equals out, we won't really see a very big movement for, for all girls. You will have pockets of areas where girls are achieving more and are accessing more and you know, getting into education at different levels and engaging in the public sphere. Um, just like in Afghanistan, in some areas, you've had women running for vice president in the last election. You've had women, you know, achieving seats in parliament and actually putting their faces on billboards, which is huge considering that they weren't allowed to show their faces at all, not too recently. Um, It's been a big change. So there's a lot that has to happen for those changes to reach those smaller territories. But I'm hopeful. Malala's done a lot for bringing the cause to, you know, front page of a lot of people's attention and... With that attention, hopefully we'll see some change. Um, you, you often said, you know, you mentioned Afghan culture. Um, how much of that is religious and how much of that is tribal and how much of that is urban? Or So from my experience, and a lot of this is my personal take on it, But having grown up in a Muslim family and having grown up surrounded by a lot of Muslim families, I don't see what's happening as, you know, the the oppression of women and the subjugation of women that's happening in some areas. I don't see this as a religious thing. I see this as what people have done with their interpretation of it. And I think you could almost, you can take any set of rules and kind of twist it in the way that you want. But, um, I mean, my father, who was born and raised in Afghanistan, he told me when I was young that I would rather starve than keep money from your education. It was a huge priority for him. And my uncles have all said the same thing to their children. I've not had, I have a really big family. I won't scare you with the numbers, but I have a really big family. And in my entire family, not one single male has ever told me, I don't think you can do that. 
or has ever hinted that they, I didn't have a possibility because I was a girl. There was never an issue of gender. If anything, I've had my uncles say, I'm so glad that you wrote this story, and I'm so glad that you as a woman wrote this story to get that voice out. My husband's family is the same thing. His sister is a physician. His her father, you know, pushed her to go into medicine and encouraged her to go out and achieve whatever she wanted. Um, so it's, I don't think it's religion because so many of the people that are my parents' contemporaries had a very different take on what a girl should be able to do. Sure. I'm really interested. Um, you hinted at sort of how the mothers feel um, and are affected by the process of this transformation, but I'm really curious about how the fathers feel about it, and if you were able to make any observations about that. So I think with the fathers, well, I'll I'll share with you one story that was kind of interesting. I spoke with a woman recently. Um, Her mother had been a bachapoche, and she didn't know it until my book came out, and that stimulated some dinnertime conversation for them, and her mother is in her 90s living in California. And so as they were talking about it, the elderly mother said to her daughter, oh, you know, actually, I was a bachapoche when I was younger. And her daughter said, you were? And she didn't know anything about it. And so the story was that her parents, her mother had had a, a couple of daughters, and the father had said, well, I'm going to take a second wife. And he was eyeing one of the neighbor's daughters um, and said he really wanted to have a son and thought maybe his wife could only have daughters. And so she was pregnant at the time. When she delivered her child, it was a girl. It was this woman. She told her son, she told her husband that this is a son. And him not being involved in the day to day care of the child, he had no idea. And so for years, he had no idea that he actually had a daughter instead of a son. And so she, for the first eight years of her life, was raised as a boy. And she came of age at eight and realized, I'm actually a girl and I want to be a girl. And so her father was like, oh, well. In the meantime, he had gone off and married the second woman anyway, and she had a daughter too. So it's a bit of a, you know. So the role of fathers, I think, in a more traditional family, fathers may not be as involved in the lives of a daughter, sometimes there are certain things that they, you know, they don't want to get into because it's a girl and they just kind of don't want to touch those subjects. Um, but you also have fathers who will be very proud of their new son, even if it's not a real son, because it is so, they're so complicit in this charade and they will really accept that child as a son. So the relationship between the father and the child who's, you know, a bacha push can can be really interesting, and then it may shift when that child switches back, um, because you know fathers and and daughters in Afghanistan are, are close in some ways, but then there are some things that you know, like when it comes to marriage, all of that conversation happens through the mother. A father wouldn't speak directly to his daughter about marriage because it's it's such a tense subject, and fathers don't really want to engage in those topics with their daughters all the time. I guess, but so they can be close when the daughter is a son, but then when the son goes back to being a daughter, suddenly is that relationship severed because now suddenly. So it, it wouldn't be severed, but it would just be different because it would go back to being the, the relationship between a father and a daughter. And that, of course, is a huge generalization because each family takes this Betcha Push custom and does it so distinctly 
and so differently. Um, this is not just a custom that happens in the poor families. It's not just a custom that happens in the villages. It happens across the board. It's kind of scattered out there. So each of those relationships, it would be hard to generalize what it, what it means because they're so unique to the family. Uh, th thank you very much. I just had a two-part question. Um, you mentioned that some of the women, when they, tra when they transition back, have sort of a reticence to sort of accept that new role. So I was wondering if you could describe the role that a society has in, in accepting them back into the role as a woman, how that affects marriage prospects, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I also was wondering if you could describe some of the research. Like, how, did you were these inter like were women open and willing to talk with you? Was it sort of a taboo discussion? Um, were, you, were you getting firsthand stories from your own family, or from did you go have to go back, or I just sort of discuss that a little bit? Sure. Thank you. Um, so to answer the first part of your question, when a woman is changing back into her natural gender, so how the Afghan, the rest of the Afghan world around her is going to accept her back sort of depends on, on what her situation is mentally at that point. So there will be some girls who are ready to go back, like this eight-year-old girl who, for you know, her example is kind of different, but she wanted to be a girl again. And so for her, it was a very easy transition. I'm sure, you know, she was just kind of going back to her regular state. And at the age of eight, gender is sort of meaningless in Afghanistan because there, there isn't a sexual connotation to gender at that point. Um, for women who are changed back at an older age, so what the family can do with them depends on what how they want to kind of go from that step on there in terms of if she's going to get married they would have to be if they want to do it right they would have to find a match for her either that she is very okay with or have it be a gentleman who is conscious of the fact that he's marrying a woman who's had a very different experience and the the traditional roles of men and women may be a little bit different in their marriage because she may have a different spin on, on what her day-to-day -day life should be like or what her role should be like. She may want to work outside the home. Um, I've read one woman who said, you know, if I do get married, if my husband ever lays a hand on me, I'll kill him. <laughs> and so that kind of a, a feistiness, um, you know, families would have to kind of address what her attitudes might be like. Some who are going into a marriage who really don't want to go into a marriage, but their families feel like, listen, it's time and it's not going to be appropriate for you to go on single for this much longer um, those families have to be aware that there may be a rift between the husband and wife more than usual because of that separation that she feels from the role of a woman or a wife in that relationship. And again, that is also going to be something that's very unique to each particular situation, each individual in each family. Um, so to get into the second part of your question, which is the research, the research was really interesting. Um, there's a decent amount of research and interviews that have been done with girls who have lived as boys. My husband's family, he has two cousins, actually, who were transformed into boys. And, um, and like I said, you know, other family members who are friends of family and things like that. So putting together their experiences, there's such a diversity in what people have felt as going through this process. And so I've taken kind of, you know, bits and pieces and then a little bit of it is my own spin as a pediatrician and having, you know, looked at developmental pediatrics and the role of gender and how children go on recognizing the world around them. I've taken a little bit of that and then um, sort of created what might happen to one 
girl, or two girls in this case. Um, so the rest of the book involved a lot of research in terms of the history of Afghanistan and the context of the country and what opportunities were available to different women. Um, one really interesting part from my research, from, from my perspective, was taking a look at what the role of women in the public field was. So, for example, Queen Soraya is one of the queens of Afghanistan who made a lot of big moves for that time period. She is a woman who actually, in a very public forum, ripped off her headscarf and sort of proclaimed that women should have equal footing with men. And she was very involved as a queen, taking on more of a, you know, a first lady kind of role. And so taking a look at what women in Afghanistan's history, what they have done was really helpful in kind of painting a picture of what the individual women who were actually in the communities might absorb from, you know, the trickle down of that, uh, of that effect. And, that also in combination with the stories that my family has shared with me. Um, so knowing the, the time period of my, my mother and her contemporaries, the fact that everybody was going to college um, in, in, her, you know, in her group, actually, they were wearing very Western clothing. They were you know, very involved in the public sphere. So understanding that the pendulum really has shifted a lot for women is a lot of what kind of went into telling the story of women here. I was kind of wondering two things. One, are you aware of anything comparable in other strongly patriarchal societies, anything like this happened, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, or what? Mm-hmm. Like that? And the second question that I have is, isn't there a huge difference? This happens both out in the villages and in, in the larger towns and cities. I would have thought it would be enormously different if you're in a village where everybody in your universe would actually know, wouldn't they? And, and yeah. as opposed to being in Kabul or in, in some larger town where a lot of the people that see you and that you see would have no idea because they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be as close. Right. So your first question about whether this happens in other areas, the Bachapush tradition from what we sort of know, and it's so vague that it's not, it's not, really well documented. We don't have numbers or data to really track how many there are. But it seems to float not only in Afghanistan, but also into some areas of Pakistan and maybe some other territories. It's across the ethnic board in Afghanistan. So I don't think it's it's not something that happens just on that border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. It kind of has trickled down. Um, There... In terms of a similar custom, the one thing that I've read about, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I have read some about it. There are, in Albania, um, people called the sworn virgins of Albania. And these are women who kind of take on a life of celibacy and decide that they're going to live their entire lives with men. I've seen pictures of them. It's pretty striking um, because they're pictures of women who are in their, they've got to be in their 50s or 60s, and they've lived their entire lives as men, um, some of them, you know, with like a gun slung over their shoulders or just a very mannish look to them. And they've just taken on that. So it's almost, it's a very similar without the requisite, you know, changing back before puberty to then meet society's needs again. These are individuals, and I don't know how many of them there are, but, um, you know, a quick Google will, will shed some light on that. Uh, I haven't really heard about it in other areas of the world, um, although, you know, with gender now, we're, we're exploring so much that it, something might come out, not as a kind of an organized practice, but maybe some pockets of things happening here and there.
Um, to your second question, uh, remind me. About the difference between doing this out in the village someplace where everyone yeah. knows everybody. Maybe they don't. So that's an interesting question, and I think that, again, speaks to the diversity across the country. So if you're living in a city, then that's a family who most likely, in a city like Kabul, they're living with their immediate family in a, in a home. And then the children, everybody is kind of engaged outside of the home. If you're living in a more rural area, that family may be confined more, <clears throat> especially the young girls, they may be confined more to like the family compound and less engaged with the entire community because it's not in a, in a condensed area like Kabul. And traditionally, the villages tend to be more conservative and a bit more insular than the cities or the capital would be. So the people in the community may not really interact with that child very much, if they do see that child on occasion, it would be very easy to accept that this is a boy because they don't really know that child very well. It's not somebody that engages in society very often. And the family, the outlying family, is very complicit with the whole changeover, so they would accept the child. And then in the cities, it's the same thing. So anybody who knows the family kind of goes along with it. People who don't know the family may not know the difference, or they may kind of suspect, but you're not really going to say anything about it because that's just something that happens in the background of Afghanistan. It's not like every family is doing this, but it happens often enough that it's not really a big deal. So, you know, after I wrote this book and started talking to more and more Afghans about it, a lot of people who had grown up living in Afghanistan were like, oh, yeah, you know, actually, there was a girl down the street from me who was one, or, you know, actually, I think my cousin was one. And they hadn't really given it much thought because it was just something that sort of happened. You didn't really think about it or give it a lot of weight. It was in the background. So I think the same thing in the, in the villages and the cities. It just is kind of floating around there. Families have that much of a zone of privacy, even out in the village. I mean, I sort of think there were villages and places where everybody knows everything about everybody else. So I would imagine even almost more in the village because if you have, um, especially if you don't have a lot of real big school structure or anything, then the families are pretty confined to their compounds. You know, the, the compounds in Afghanistan, a family compound has, they all have these like big privacy walls around them. Um, and you kind of, the, the family life is, is fairly private. So there probably wouldn't be a lot of interaction. Yeah. Hello. Um, thank you. You're wonderful. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to your writer's process as to how the story came about and, you know, how you pieced it together and what that was like. Sure. Um, that was a, an interesting experience. It really, for me, the writing process was really about just sitting down and believing that I could actually do something. And in the beginning, it wasn't something I took a whole, you know, very seriously because it was so new to me when it was so foreign from what I was doing in my, you know, nine to five, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, writing was like, okay, fine, I'll try this and see what happens. And then as you start a story, I think the biggest thing is just to put a couple sentences on the page and just to start with something. And that something will very likely get erased or deleted at some point. But it's that, that kernel that you start with that allows you to have the confidence to write the next sentence and the next paragraph and then the next page. And then from there, uh, at some point in the writing of a story, you know, you may have a sort of an outline and it sort of takes on its own living, breathing existence and transforms into something that you can't really walk away from because you have to finish it off. 
um, that's what happened for me, at least. Like, the character sort of took on this course, and I had to figure out what was going to happen to them and how they were going to end up at where they needed to be to kind of close the story off. So it's a very interesting process because you you have to take a leap. It's very hard to sit down and say, I'm going to write 362 pages. (laughs) And then it will get published, you know. Um, But more than that is just sitting down, having an idea, and then having something that you feel interested enough in that you feel like you can carry it on for a bit. And understanding that you can scrap that and redo it, and it will be okay, but you will reach your end point at some point. So um, that being, you know, I also, you, you then have to go through the process of finding a literary agent and, and doing all like the business side of it. It's beyond, you know, just a story, but you, you can't get to any of that without just sitting down and wanting to write something. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I just have to say, first of all, I really loved your book. I loved that um, it was so full of really strong women and girl characters. Thank you. Um, And on that note, one of the scenes that I thought was really powerful was in the, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but (laughs) in the parliament room, there was a woman that uh, stood up and kind of fought for her rights. And I got the sense that you, it was like such a clear, description of the woman and her aims and goals. I got the sense that you might have been basing it on someone or were inspired by someone. Um, So I didn't know if you could elaborate on that. And uh, my second question would be, because um, the gender roles are changing, as you said, just um, in Afghanistan and around the world, girls are um, fighting up for their rights, speaking out more. Um, And a major part of this has to do with social media. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know if you could... um, maybe talk a little bit about how that has impacted the Baka Posh tradition and um, equality in sure. Afghanistan. Well, thanks for reading. I appreciate you being here. Um, the that scene in Parliament that you were talking about, and so you know, part of the story, in my mind, gender has a lot to do with politics, not just in Afghanistan, but everywhere. So that scene in Parliament, you know, there are a lot of female parliamentarians in Afghanistan right now thanks in great part to the quota that was set up. So there's, you know, 20 to 25% of the the parliamentarians have to be women. So that's brought a lot of really interesting voices into the the government. And the women who are in parliament, to be an Afghan woman in parliament, you can't really be a very meek or timid woman. You have to really, if you want to get anything done, you have to be outspoken, you have to be defiant, and you have to be really determined And so there are a couple of female parliamentarians who have really stood out as just that kind of a a personality. Um, I think two of them have written biographies. Uh, Fauzia Kufi is one. And I can get you the name of the other one. I don't know if she's written a biography, but they're the type of women who, you know, that scene in Parliament was inspired by true situations where these women have been so outspoken and then you have you know some of the men around them kind of chiding them or looking down on them or feeling that this woman is totally out of place and that she shouldn't she shouldn't be overstepping her grounds okay fine you're here in parliament but you don't really have to say anything you know so there's a there's going to be a a big 
I guess, uh, a steep learning curve for men to understand that the women who are there in parliament are not just there to fill the quota, but they're actually there to participate and that they are entitled to have a voice. And in order to have a voice in parliament, they're going to have to speak louder than the men and they're going to have to stand up taller than the men because of the the undercurrent that's there and you know they're they're coming up against a tradition that's you know they've been in in shuttled in the homes for so many years so um they also take on a lot of risks in order to be in the parliament so you know in the latest elections a lot of the women who are running were targeted with a lot of the you know the the violent attacks because some of those you know groups did not want to see women being so public they didn't want to see women's faces on billboards and they risk their lives to do that to play a role in government and it's because they really want to be a voice in tomorrow um and your second so the social media that's another interesting thing and i don't know if we have a lot of information on what impact it really has on the bacha push custom specifically but i can tell you i went to afghanistan in 2002 and one of the first things that I noticed going through the streets were, you know, there were lots of different shops and buildings coming up. You know, you've got like rubble on one side of the street. And on the other side of the street, you've got these like beautiful buildings that are coming up. And then you would see these internet cafes, um, which you don't really see here now anymore. But we used to have them here in the United States, too, not too long ago. Um, and that's what you would see in Afghanistan, too, were internet cafes. Because as the internet kind of reached into the capitals and the cities and people started to have access to what was going on in the rest of the world. And as the lives around them became more peaceful and they didn't have to worry about war, they could actually start to engage in, you know, talking with the rest of the world. Now, social media is a more recent, but through the magic of Facebook, I mean, I now have cousins that I'm in touch with on a more regular basis simply because we have Facebook and it makes it so easy to communicate. Whereas before, I mean, who is going to go and find a calling card and then you have to call somebody, and if they have a phone, that's great. Um, it used to be, I remember when my parents used to call, there would be like one phone for the neighborhood, and so you'd have to call, you know, wait for the phone to be free and call on that phone line in order to get in touch with somebody. But the the introduction of mobile phones, I mean, even in 2002 when I went, my cousins all had cellular phones, and so they were running around with their, their mobile phones. The accessibility of the outside world, the accessibility of each other has changed things a lot. Um, the Internet has also changed, and phones have really changed the way people are meeting each other. So young men and young women can now have more clandestine interactions because their parents won't really see who they're calling or who they're talking to. And, and so it's really changed how things are happening for the younger generation. Yeah. Yeah, not that I know of. To my knowledge, there isn't really an association or a group of them. Right. Yeah, to my knowledge, it's... I haven't known of any who really had much interaction with anyone else. It was sort of an independent... Right, right. Which may add to how profound of an experience it is if you're not sharing it with someone. Possibly, yeah, yeah. Thank you.
Thank you all for coming, for, for being interested, and for engaging in the conversation. It's really been an enjoyable talk with everyone. So thank you. Yes. Can I just ask you, are you going to write more books, or are you going to go back and be a pediatrician? <laughs> Both. I, um, I have a second book that's coming out in July, which is also about an Afghan family. Um, it's an Afghan family that's traumatized uh, by a, a singular event during the time of the Taliban regime, and they're forced to become refugees and flee a very dangerous situation. And they sort of make their way across Europe, and they become absorbed into that underground world of you know, the undocumented. Um, and so it touches on the, the strain of you know, countries that are dealing with refugees and how much they can handle or can't handle, and then you know, what the drive is for people to really look for a new life and kind of come of age. Yeah. Thank you.